to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. The church is a, is a separate kingdom. It's an alternative kingdom. The church is to be a place, a community within and among the nations that has distinct features about it, that has certain things about it that set it apart from everything else. And probably the key thing is love. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Galatians. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10, in a message titled, Sowing and Reaping. Now, here's Pastor Brian. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we come today to looking at this letter to the Church of Philadelphia. And I want to briefly touch on the things that Jesus said about and to this church in the ancient city of Philadelphia. And then I want to move from there to look once again at the vital topic of love. Not love for Jesus per se, because we looked at that previously, but we want to look at the vital topic of love for one another, love amongst ourselves. And so that's where we're headed. But first, let me just touch on the things that Jesus said about the church and then the things that he said to this church in Philadelphia. First, he said, I have set before you an open door. This is a reference to the fact that this church is a church that's been given opportunities by Jesus, opportunities to spread the gospel, opportunities to see uh, the work of the kingdom advanced. Now, this church, this church of Philadelphia here, this is, this is one of only two churches out of the seven that is entirely commended by the Lord. There's no correctional word here. There's no word of, of any kind of condemnation or judgment. It's just a, a word of encouragement all the way. This was 
what you might call the faithful church. And so the faithful church has this open door given to them to advance the gospel. He says, secondly, you have a little strength. And so the church has a little strength. You know, there, there is a theology that has been around for a long, long, long time that the church is going to ultimately take over the world, that the church is going to dominate all nations. And uh, it, it's actually sometimes referred to as dominion theology, but that's not really the biblical picture. The church is here in the world as a witness to Christ. The church isn't gonna take over the world. Jesus is gonna take over the world. He's gonna come back literally himself, and he is going to set up the kingdom. But in the time between now and then, he's given us a little strength. We have the strength to do the things that he's called us to do. And then thirdly, it says regarding the church here in Philadelphia, he says, you have kept my word and not denied my name. So this is one of the key elements here in the commendation of Jesus for the church, that they've kept his word and how important it is for us to be people who keep the word of God congregationally, of course, as a church, but obviously personally as well. And as we keep God's word, then that will assure us that we will not deny his name. So those are the things that he said to the church. But then about the church, he says, because you have kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So here's an, a unique promise for those who keep his word, they're gonna be kept out of the great tribulation. So this shows us that the letter, although it obviously had application to the historical church at the time, the application obviously goes far beyond that because Jesus is talking about the time of the end. He's talking about the great tribulation, which is yet to come. This did not happen in those days. There was no tribulation that came upon the whole world to test all of those who dwell on the face of the earth. That's a future event, and the promise is a promise of deliverance for those who keep his word, and then he also said to them that he is coming quickly. And so, of course, that's the whole point of Revelation, right, is to talk about the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. But here, he, again, he's talking more specifically about coming for the church, coming to deliver the church out of the judgment that will come upon the world. So these are more or less the key points that are here in the letter to the Church of Philadelphia. I want to take a, a bit of a different perspective on this letter to the Church of Philadelphia here today, and I want to look at it from the standpoint of the significance of the name of the church. Now, maybe you remember I said this a couple of times recently, that these seven churches in their names, their graces, their defects, etc., they comprehend everything found in the entire church as it then existed or ever would exist. Philadelphia, so we're gonna focus on the name of the church because to some extent, the names of the churches, the cities that Jesus chose, the very, the very names of those cities, there was a message in the name to some extent. And I think particularly with this one, Philadelphia, of course, means brotherly love. 
And so this letter is addressed to the church in the city of brotherly love. I don't think that it would be inaccurate to say that the church itself is to be the city of brotherly love. I think that's what Jesus had in mind as he's establishing his church. Now, remember, the church is in the world, but it's, it's separate from the world. The church is a, is a separate kingdom. It's an alternative kingdom. And it is, the church is to be a place, a community within and among the nations that has distinct features about it, that has certain things about it that, that set it apart from everything else. And probably the, the key thing is love. The church is really to be like a city of brotherly love. Now, of course, if you went to the city of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania today, you would find that it is far from the city of brotherly love, uh, although that's what it's, uh, you know, was intended to be originally. But no, I'm talking about a city that, just imagine this for a moment in your mind, a city that really was the city of brotherly love a city where, man, you walked in and you just automatically felt like, boy, there, there's something different here. Wow, this, there's, there's love in the air, you know, where, where it was tangible. Well, listen, that's what the church is supposed to be. The church is, an, is a different community. It's a different people. As a matter of fact, Peter tells us that the church is a, is a different nation. It's a holy nation. And so the church is to be that nation that you go into, and once you cross the border into that nation, you sense that, oh, there's something different here. So that's, I think, clearly what Jesus intended. And the early Christians seem to understand this probably better than we do today. Listen to the words of a second century Greek philosopher. Aristides. And now what he's doing is he, he's writing about what he observed in the church. He's not a Christian. He's somebody in the outside looking in at the church and listen to what he says. He says, they seek to persuade their servants and handmaids or children to become Christians by the love they have for them. And when they have become so, they call them without distinction brothers. They walk in all humility and kindness, and they love one another. When they see a stranger, they bring him to their homes and rejoice over him as over a true brother, for they do not call brothers those who are after the flesh, but those who are in the spirit and in God. If there is among them a man that is poor and needy, and if they have not an abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with the necessary food." Such is the law of the Christians, and such is their conduct. So remember, this is an outsider. This is a person looking on. This is a person who's not part of the community, but they, as they look into it, they see, wow, there is something really special here. There's something different here. Now, what do people see looking on at the church today? Because obviously there are many people that are looking on at the church today. What do they see? Well, I, I'm afraid that they're not seeing a lot of the times the same kind of thing that this writer saw. 
Unfortunately, today, quite often, they're seeing anything but love being manifested in the churches among Christian people, toward those that are on the outside. And unfortunately, this is a, a reality. People looking on today, they hear Christians, many times leaders, speaking harshly and mercilessly about those with whom we morally, theologically, or politically disagree. And now, obviously, there's a, as we, as we even bring this up, there's always the factor, of course, of, of the media who is generally opposed to the church, sort of misrepresenting at times, or it's a caricaturization of you know, what we really are. But the truth of the matter is, oftentimes, these kinds of unkind, unloving, lacking in compassion statements are being made. And it's a reality. It's not just a, an accusation that doesn't have a base in reality. There, there is a factual basis to it. And so it seems that in regard to the church being the city of brotherly love, we continue to fall short of what Jesus intended. And this is an area that we really, we have to recognize. And we have to realize that this for Jesus and his apostles after him, this is, top, this is top priority. Let me just give you a number of quotes from Jesus and the apostles regarding love. And before I even read through these quotes, know this, this is the short list. I intentionally cut this list way down because of our time limitations, but we could go on and on with this, but just let me give you a few examples. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, Pray for them that spitefully use and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. You know, it's almost like we're almost hearing some of that sort of rhetoric today. We're almost hearing that kind of a thing where love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But Jesus said, no, don't do that. That's not what we are to do. Jesus went on to say, he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus said, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, he said, owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Writing to the church in Thessalonica, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Peter said, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. And then the Apostle John, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And again, like I said, the list goes on and on. We could go on with this quoting verse after verse. So my point is this, that, that love is a priority as far as Jesus is concerned. But tragically, so often throughout the history of the church, and, and I mean throughout the long history of the church, this is an area where we have missed it. So practically, how does this work? Or how, how, do, how could we implement this? Well, it has to start amongst ourselves. The first place it starts is loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
But quite often, we're, we're not even doing that. But that's where it must start. Now, to give you an example of how we, we fail in this so often, in 1900, the year 1900, there were 1,600 different Christian denominations in the world. 1,600. Now, that, that's, that's quite a few, right? Everybody, they're all Christians, but they've, they've all got sort of, you know, different takes on things that have caused there to be these denominations that have developed. So that was 1900. Today, there are 45,000. 45,000 different denominations, movements, networks. Now, listen, most denominations that exist are due to disputes among believers, usually over doctrine, mostly over non-essential issues, but frequently over personal conflict. You see, this is the problem. These divisions are generally a result of disputes. Now, of course, there are times when doctrinal disputes are necessary because we have to contend for the truth. But oftentimes, it's, it's non-essential issues. It's not the, the core doctrines of the faith that are at stake. But again, frequently, it's over personal conflict. Now, I'm quoting from an article in Christianity Today. The writer says this. He says, we share a common set of core beliefs, but insist on meeting separately often needlessly duplicating what would be more effective and efficiently achieved working together for the kingdom. So this whole thing of you know, 45,000 different denominations, if you will, or, or, or things similar to that, this is an indictment against the church. It's an indictment speaking about the fact that we have failed in this area, and we have evidently forgotten that our most powerful and effective means of bearing witness to Christ is love for one another. See, this is huge. This is huge because Jesus said, this is the thing above everything else. This is going to be the thing that is going to have the greatest impact if we love one another. So listen, I hope that there's no one here or, or even listening to me that has this mentality, but if you do, listen. If you think that you've been called to find fault with and criticize other believers or pastors or churches or ministries, you are wrong. You have not been called to do that. Now, some people, they feel that that's their calling in the body of Christ. Their calling is to find fault. Their calling is to criticize. And they will often say, well, you know, I'm just standing up for the truth. I'm just defending the truth. Now, like I said, we do need to contend for the faith. That's true. We do need to stand for truth. That is true. But we have to remember this. When we speak the truth, we must always speak the truth in love. And if we're not speaking the truth in love, you know what we end up being? A sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Nobody hears it. They're not listening to this. And so this is something that we have to really take seriously. You know, oftentimes I hear people speaking critically of other Christians, other pastors, other movements, and sometimes I'm just cringing. I'm thinking, wow, you know, where, where did you ever get the idea that as a child of God, 
you could speak like that about somebody who is a, a brother or sister in Christ. I mean, this is just, it should not happen among us. Now, I, I'm not standing up here saying that I'm completely innocent in regard to this because I haven't been. There are times over the years and, and thankfully most, mostly in the past where um, I have done that very thing. I've, I've spoken out harshly and unlovingly and, and you know, God's convicted me as the years have gone by. It's funny, sometimes today I might hear my, uh, a message on the radio and although the content of what I'm saying, I, I, I agree with it, I, I still hold that position. Sometimes I'm cringing at the tone that I'm hearing in my own voice that's coming across the radio. I'm just like, oh gosh, I can't believe. Uh, years ago, uh, when I was living in London, I've been on the radio in London for years now. So we have a regular radio broadcast in London that goes on every you know five days a week in London. And um, years ago, I, I, I preached a message from John chapter eight, just speaking about Jesus being the light of the world. And in that message, uh, and, I, and I preached it before I moved to London, I preached it in the context of life here in Southern California. And in the, in the message, you know, I, I talked about Jesus being the light of the world. I talked about the darkness of Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and all, all the way along, you know. And um, of course, when you start broadcasting in an international city like London, you're gonna have all kinds of people, you know, from all different backgrounds. And anyway, I, I got a lot of letters from people who were not real happy with a lot of the things I said. And of course, back in those days, I thought, well, you know, they just can't take the truth and uh, they're wrong and I'm right. But I did take the time to listen to the message myself. And as I listened to it, I cringed. I thought, ah, oh, they were right. Jokingly, I changed the title of the message to a xenophobic looks at John chapter eight. You know what a xenophobic is? A xenophobic is a person who thinks their own culture is the greatest culture in the world and every, everybody else is just, you know, out to lunch. So, I mean, you know, I jokingly <laughs> changed the name in my mind to that, but I thought, you know, that, that's what I'm talking about. We have to be careful about how we say things. Yes, we have to speak the truth. We can't stop speaking the truth. But when we speak the truth, we must speak it from a heart of love. And if we're truly speaking it from a heart of love, you know what? The tone is gonna indicate that. It's gonna come across. You're gonna get it. For the month of June, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled The Myth of Coincidence by John Bonner. Coincidence, do things in life simply happen by chance? Or is there actually a loving God behind the scenes who is weaving His goodness into the details of our lives? Well, in his book, The Myth of Coincidence, John Bonner testifies of the God who uses our failures, weaknesses, and tragedies to intentionally create a life of fruitfulness. If you want to be encouraged that the same God is working in your life in purposeful ways, this book will remind you that God is indeed at work in your life too. So we encourage you to call us right now. 
at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. To order The Myth of Coincidence by John Bonner. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Revelation. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. Hi, this is Cheryl and Brian Broderson. And we wanted to tell you that we're going to Israel in October. October 2022, and we want you there with us. Yeah, the dates are October 23rd through November 4th, and this is going to be a tremendous trip. Cheryl, what's your favorite thing about Israel? I love the Galilee, but Brian, you and I both know there's so much because we love watching the Bible come alive, whether you're at Tel Aviv or you're at Jerusalem or Caesarea. Yep, or Mount Mount Carmel. Carmel. Yes. We are so excited about this Israel trip because we absolutely love going to Israel. So we'd love to have you join us October 23rd through November 4th, 2022. And you can find more information at israel.cccm.com. We'd love to have you join us.